This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. You're listening to Bay Area Ventures on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here again, Doug Collum. Hey, welcome back, everybody. This is Bay Area Ventures, broadcasting live as usual from the campus here at Wharton San Francisco. I'm your host, Doug Collum. If you're just joining us, uh, we're broadcasting today for the first time from our new home on the radio dial. We're at channel 132. If you're just now joining us for the first time, hey, we're at channel 132. This is our new home. So it's ironic, and this was not planned. I'm joined now by Randy Commissar, also an experienced venture capitalist with a lot of startup experience. His background is also at Kleiner Perkins, and it was just uh, so ironic that both Randy and Trey Vasallo, who just left us, uh, you know, both had a substantial part of their careers spent there at that at that uh, institutional VC firm. So, Randy, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. So, um, you've got you you've had so many hats that you've worn, and today I thought what we'd do is we'd talk about as a principal theme this new book that you just wrote uh, called. Um, Help me here. Straight talk for straight startups. T- straight talk for startups. The so 100, let's see, it's 100 insider rules, rules for beating the odds. For beating the odds. I thought about title. that title a long time so I can recite it. Okay. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, that will be our principal theme, but there's so many other things to talk about, and they all kind of meld around this this entrepreneurial theme, which is, I mean, it's, it's hard work, and I, you're going to be a great guest, I can tell. <laughs> so maybe... Um, why don't we start your background? Entrepreneur, mentor, teacher, speaker, writer, and investor. So maybe you can, maybe you start at the beginning. What's your What's your educational background? Yeah. Um, well, so I uh, I studied economics at Brown University, and when I graduated from Brown for a while, I um, taught economics in a small college there named Johnson Wales College, actually a cooking school. I taught in a night program. Cooking. Um, yeah, it was a cooking school. Still is a great teaching school. economics and I cooking. taught economics. Yeah, <laughs> mostly to Vietnam vets coming back. Okay, that's, that, that's the time frame. Yeah, I also helped run a community development program there, which I really loved for the city of Providence, um, and I was a runner for a. Um, music promotion company. So I was a kind of a junior partner in a music promotion company, mostly rock concerts. We did that for, so it, my day would look like this, Doug. I would <laughs> wake up in the morning, put on a suit and tie, um, go down to the mayor's office and work for a good eight hours to five o'clock, take off the tie, go to Johnson and Wales and teach for an hour, take off the jacket, go to the clubs and help manage bands and promote new concerts that were coming to town and then do it the next day. It was great. You know, we should pause here. I'm going to talk to the producer. I think we're going to have to go three or four hours to cover all this. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty amazing. Yeah. So, so dial forward. So um, I, I was made the comment, Randy, last hour about, you know, the most, based on my experiences as a lawyer kind of perching in, in boardrooms and listening to things go on, that the most capable VCs, in my estimate, are those who bring to the table business and operating experience. I mean, having having lived through it before and having a sense for, I mean, pattern recognition is only a small part of it. It's really a sense for understanding people and how businesses work and so forth. 
And you definitely have that in spades. Maybe you can walk us through quickly kind of some of your business experiences just to kind of level set on where we are. Well, when I left Providence, I was having such a good time. I real I figured I needed to do penance, so I went to law school. Oh my god! Um, <laughs> graduated from law school and was a litigator for a while. Huh? Uh, found my way out here with the litigation big, in the East Coast. East Coast, okay. With a, a now defunct big law firm, it was the biggest law firm in Boston at the time. Came out here to their Palo Alto office, worked there for a short period of time, and then found my way to Apple Computer as a um, senior counsel. So first as a lawyer, then as a deal maker. I went from there to a spin out of the software company with my longtime mentor and friend, Bill Campbell. And that's where I tasted the business side. At Apple. When we spun out Claris. Claris. So it was actually a, my first spin out slash startup. It was my first entrepreneurial activity in the Silicon Valley system. So when Apple spun out this thing called Claris, did you make that shift over? At some point, you morphed away from lawyering and more into the business side? Was that your first foray into true business? Well, Apple was kind of that way. Even though I was brought in as senior counsel, um, Al Eisenstadt, who was the general counsel there, had a, had a philosophy, which was understaff the inside lawyers so they couldn't do the work, and all they could do was manage the work. And so I became a dealmaker. I was the inside dealmaker. I was the I was the season orchestrating the flow of activity, getting deals done. I literally was. If you think there was no business development function at Apple in those days, so I was a business development person. I huh. did the deals, and um, and that brought me to the spinout with Claris when Bill Campbell came, right. asked me to be a co-founder with him, with a number of other really great I remember people. That. Yeah, yeah, remember that? Yeah, remember that? Um, that was. Uh, I went there first as a lawyer, but also I became the. Um, I took on a lot of responsibilities for all the other moving parts, whether it was facilities or HR, anything that moved inside the organization, and gravitated from the law to the business side. And that was, apparently, that stuck. Well, that, to me, was an epiphany. I mean, I can still remember one day as a lawyer being at, um, I was actually at Forella at the time, and we were selling Pixar to Steve Jobs. I had, I had actually won the, the uh, even as, a, as a, a junior associate, I had won the account from, from Lucas. So it was my account. We were selling the company. It was a fabulous day. I can remember all the principals were in, and my job was sitting around collating all of the documents. And I said, I am not going to do this again. I'm going to be at that table. Yeah. And that's where I went. Yeah. So after, so Clarice eventually went back, was folded back into Apple. And did, is that when you moved or did you stay with Apple? No. When we sold Clarice back to Apple, I went with Bill Campbell to Go Corporation, first pen oh, computer I remember business. That. Okay. Yeah. So I went with Bill and there I was the CFO. So there I had no – I did manage legal, but I was not operating a legal function at all. Just as a point of information, Bill Campbell is known to, to most people in, in the circles that you and I travel in, not known outside of that. Could you just spend a moment on Bill? Yeah. I mean, Bill Campbell's an exceptional person. He was the uh, mentor to Steve Jobs, to Larry and Sergey, to Eric Schmidt, to Jeff Bezos – um, All CEOs and founders of these iconic amazing iconic companies. companies. Right. He was the go-to mentor. He came from a background in coaching. He had been the football coach at Columbia. Even though he had a terrible record, 
he had an amazing instinct. And when he came out to Silicon Valley, he brought an approach to business that nobody else had seen before. It was a human-centered approach. It was about people and potential. Mm -hmm. And frankly, that's what got me excited. I, I would have never gone into business for the money. Not that I don't need money. Everybody needs money. But it wasn't very interesting to me. Bill made it interesting to me because he made it about people. The people that you make products for, the people you make products with, and the people that you share the value creation with. And when it became about people, it became interesting. And Bill was the master of people. So Bill and I, I mean, I, I, I worked with Bill from 1986 to, frankly, his death two years ago. And he and I would meet regularly every month wow. for lunch whether we needed it or not we worked on projects in between he was on the board at nest when i did nest with uh, tony fidel and uh, with uh, matt rogers um so we did projects together we met all the time we were close friends um forever so how so i don't want to skip over these companies but your, your role within companies has changed. I mean, it started as a lowly in-house counsel, <laughs> and it became more like business chief business development officer. And now it's more like uh, in the leadership ranks of these companies that you've gone to. Is that? I mean, how would you define your well your skill set at this point in your career? I mean, knowing you're not. Uh, yeah, go ahead. Right. When yeah. I when I left Go um, as CFO, when we sold that company AT and T. I joined LucasArts Entertainment as a CEO. And that's where up you and in, I met again. Yeah, up right? in, in Napa? Exactly. Yeah. So you and I met again there when I needed your help in navigating some of the legal issues with uh, the mothership, Lucasfilm. This I is about you. That. No, that was, exactly. <laughs> um, but, uh, so I became the CEO there. And that was my first CEO gig. Uh, and that was a substantial company, like a oh, seriously substantial. Oh, very company. substantial. Yeah, very. I mean, LucasArts Entertainment was, I think, probably the leading game company at the time. Electronic Arts had more products, but we had better products. Yeah. Um, and then uh, I went from there to a company called Crystal Dynamics, where I was the CEO of a fledgling startup in the game company for Kleiner Perkins. Now, where was that? Here in the Bay Area? That was here in the Bay Area. Okay. Yeah, down in, uh, down in Palo Alto, actually. Um, so I did those two gigs as a CEO. And then I sort of um, did a lot of soul searching when I was at Crystal Dynamics. I, I I decided I wasn't really getting a lot of satisfaction out of being a CEO. I didn't really enjoy it. Kind of like you'd been or done that time to turn the page? No. What happened was early, early on in each one of these companies, I found the job exciting because it was about um, inventing a business, uh, building an organization. Creating something. Crea it, yeah. it was a creation. And then it quickly became management. And then more importantly, it quickly became um, people management. I mean, most of what you end up doing in one of those roles is solving lots of conflicts and issues and ego problems. And frankly, I just found it, I just, I found it not a good use of my time as compared to the creation. So when I, when I left Crystal Dynamics, I actually invented a role in the Valley called Virtual CEO. And I invented that role specifically to focus my time and attention on creation and not on day-to-day -day management. And the first company I did was Web TV. I then did TiVo. I did global giving on the social side. And so I did a number of companies where I would come in and lend my expertise, my experience, not just to building the business, but to developing the founders and the management team. 
And I would do that as a kind of creating a construct for the business. That's right. Yeah. And I would be very and was very active. I would be in the office, putting out fires, sitting in meetings, counseling the management. So there was nothing virtual about that. You were in there rubbing shoulders with people. What was virtual was I wasn't actually the CEO. And that was a very careful decision I was making. I was recruited to be a CEO of a number of these companies. And I said, no, I don't really want to do that. Let me work with you and help me help you to develop to be a better CEO. And if you're not the right CEO, let's find the right CEO. But I want to manage a portfolio of new ideas. I want to manage a portfolio of creative wow, enterprises. Yes. And so I did that for That's about a decade. pretty unique. Well, it wow. worked exceedingly well. And what happened, of course, was that um, this was the late 90s into the early 2000s. And venture capital was on fire. But that skill set was missing from venture capital. You know, in the old days when Kleiner and Perkins came together to put together Kleiner Perkins, they were operators. They were entrepreneurs investing in entrepreneurs. That began to dissipate and dilute into the 90s as the carpetbaggers came in and saw the ability to make <laughs> yeah. money fast. Yeah. And so we ended up with more MBAs who could easily, easily be at a hedge fund as they are at a venture capital firm. Yeah. And it was no longer entrepreneurs investing in entrepreneurs. It was, you know, bankers investing in entrepreneurs. And, um, and so I was a That's rare animal at yeah. that time because I had the operating experience. I was an entrepreneur, and I could bring to the table what the venture capitalists lacked. Pretty amazing. I mean, so now so dial us forward to where you are today. I mean, uh, how many hats are you wearing, and what are they? So uh, from there, of course, I went to Kleiner Perkins. I was in, recruited to, to Kleiner Perkins in the mid-2000s by John Doerr. Um, it was a hard decision for me to make, frankly, because I loved the virtual CEO role. Yeah. But I was impressed with the, um, with the vision that John had for what venture capital could actually do by taking on big societal and global problems like sustainability. And, um, and he invited me to take my model. He didn't, the idea wasn't to make me into a quote-unquote banker venture capitalist. The idea was to bring my uh, talent development model into a venture capital firm. And so that's what I did. And I've been doing that uh, for the last 12, 13 years now. Um, at Kleiner. At Kleiner. Yeah. And I continue to do that. I still have a large portfolio there that I manage and a number of funds that I was a, a um, managing partner in. Um, and I, uh, but going forward, I am no longer actively investing out of Kleiner. I'm mentoring and developing the team at, at Kleiner and focused in on talent inside the portfolio. Other directions. So just quickly for people just dialing in, I'm Doug Collum. Our guest this hour is Randy Commissar, who has so many hats it's hard to describe him. I'm just going to call you an experienced venture capitalist, but mm. also an author. Mm. Um, and I wanted to, I mean, just quickly identify, you've, you've written some books, and we're going to come back to your time management skills. <laughs> but I think it's instructive just to go through the titles quickly. Getting to Plan B, Breaking Through to a Better Business Model. And then you wrote a book, The Monk and the Riddle, The Art of Creating a Life While Making a Living. Mm. Definitely I'm coming back to that one. Uh, next one is I Fucking Love That Company, <laughs> How a New Generation of Brand Builders is Defining the Post-Amazon World. Mm. And now your most recent book, Straight Talk for Startups, 100 Insider Rules for Beating the Odds. And we'll come back to that one in more detail. But my question is, you know, life is full. Mm. Lots of moving parts. And somehow, I mean, there are two things. One is you're making a decision to write. And secondly, you're finding the time, you're prioritizing your, your time in a way that enables you to write. 
thoughts, comments? Well, look, writing is, um, certainly for me, it is a, an important way of provoking new ideas and starting discussions to challenge the status quo. I mean, I, there, there, there's a couple of reasons for writing, none of which have to do with making money. Um, you don't make a lot of money in the publishing world. Uh, you can write in order to elevate your visibility and to create a platform for doing other things like speaking. Um, or you can write because you believe that it's important to get your ideas out there and to get them into the general conversation. Do you find that writing crystallizes your thoughts? Your I thinking? do, very much so. It, it's, it's a discipline. I Very much so. And, it, and, um, and I, that's why uh, writing can be a very solitary endeavor. I like to write with a collaborator like I did on this one with Jean Toon Rigersman, a great collaborator for me. I like to write with a great editor, like I did with Hollis Heimbach, the same editor on this last book as I had on my first book, The Monk and the Riddle, um, because that becomes the first part of the dialogue, because now your ideas are starting to be exposed to others, and they're being pushed upon and polished, and you're, you can second guess and refine your ideas. So, um, I mean, it's hard to even get into this discussion without understanding how you manage time. Mm. I mean, you've got so many different balls up in the air. I mean, the trick is to keep them all up in the air and not let any one of them drop. Is that how you see it? How do you, how do you manage time? You know, at Wharton, we teach this thing called work-life balance, which kind of, it seems inferentially, it looks like that's part of what your book was about, The Monk and the Riddle. It's actually, it's interesting. I, I heard How that, do you manage your time? I heard uh, Jeff Bezos respond to the work-life balance with a word that actually is much more, um, I think, uh, reflective of that, um, The Monk and the Riddle, which is work-life harmony. The reality is in the innovation world, particularly in the competitive entrepreneurial world, there is no balance, right? Um, the balance is dynamic. You might be all on and then you might have a chance to recoup and then you might be all on again. Think about it as doing wind sprints, um, doing, yeah. a, doing a marathon in wind sprints. And so um, I, the way I conduct my time is very similar. I'm all in when I'm um, investing in a new company or g helping them get uh, financed or helping a CEO rise to the next level, there's not time for much else. Um, I'm all in when I'm working with my partners around investing a fund. Uh, I'm also all in when I'm writing a book or when I'm teaching. I taught at Stanford for eight years, uh, and that was very demanding, also very rewarding, but it meant a commitment of time and effort. It's intense. Now, mind you, one of the ways that I do this is I really cut out all the, all the distractions. Um, I don't travel much for business. I won't get on an airplane and fly. It's a waste of time. I would, uh, I'll do phone calls rather than get in a car and drive in Bay Area traffic. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, I, won't, I won't have meetings every night and every weekend. Um, I find them to be uh, a, a a very small value, incremental value. So it's about protecting enough time for me to meditate, to exercise, to eat well, to read, and to think in addition to what I do. It's hard to react to that. My reaction is that it's almost like a, it's almost like a self-indulgence because you have been able to create opportunities that will wait until you've, you've completed a task. So you're writing a book, you're not teaching, 
you're not investing, you're not coaching a team, you're writing a book, and don't bother me. Yeah. And when I write, when I finish the book, then we'll turn to your company and we'll get that going too. I mean, that is a it's a luxury that many people don't have. It's a privilege, but it's a privilege by design. I think you're right. Many people won't have that, but you'd be surprised how many people could. Yeah. I, th- I think if you simply put down the limits, you'll be surprised how well people will work around your limits, and you'll also be surprised how little those limits um, impede your ability to succeed, however that's defined. I think the first time that I took a month's vacation on my bicycle in the middle of my teaching at Stanford and doing, and doing my virtual CEO work, I thought, this is going to be impossible. How can I take a month off, take my bicycle to Asia, ride for a month? And not? And this is when, when you really weren't going to be able to communicate back and forth by cell phone. It wasn't going to happen. And I came back, deleted every email that I'd received in a month. Just deleted them. Just got rid of them. Just, I didn't know what they said, and I didn't care. It was too many. I wasn't going to read them. Yeah. <laughs> within, it's like within a week, yeah. within a week, I realized I'd missed nothing. Nothing. Yeah. And that was an epiphany for me. Yeah. If it doesn't it demand demand your response immediately, then it can wait. We yeah. we I don't I think that we accept way too many demands on ourselves that are unnecessary to our ability to get things done. Yeah. So I wanna I, I do wanna um it's really um I'm trying to pick my approach to this because you bring to the table a pretty substantial experience as an investor and prior to that as an operator and as an entrepreneur. So uh, some of these questions are cliched, but my my prediction is that your responses to them will not be cliched. <laughs> so one of the things you hear about, I mean, in the press, which I think does a huge disservice to the general populace, it, it, it gives the impression that, in fact, most startup companies, I mean, it's like, finding money mm-hmm. everywhere. I mean, mm-hmm. you start a, start a company and the next thing you know, they're doing a, a huge financing or they're doing an IPO or they're getting sold for a lot of money. And so there's this impression that most companies, in fact, are these amazing successes when, in fact, it's just the opposite. Most companies are failures, but the press doesn't report those. So it comes back to the investor who's making, who's making some selective decisions about which companies to back the question is one of you know fortune versus skill. Mm-hmm. How, what's what is the mix? I hear a lot of VCs who stand up and say, "Look, it's mostly just serendipity. Mm-hmm. It's the right place at the right time. Skill has so little to do with it." But I'm not sure that I think that's too simplistic. What's what's your response? I do think there's a mix, but I don't know how to assess it. I talk a lot about it in Straight Talk for Startups. <sighs> I believe that luck is a four-letter word in the Valley in the sense that we now have this libertarian streak where we take full credit for our success without giving much appreciation or gratitude for all the things that contribute to our success, the people, the resources, the opportunities. And, um, And I believe that for great success to occur, many things have to happen outside of your control. And, and many of those will be unpredictable. I call that luck. That is not the luck of a house of money falling on your head in the middle of Market Street. That is the luck of opportunity appearing. 
that you need to be skilled and prepared to seize the moment. And I think of luck, managing luck, as a critical business skill that business schools fail to teach and that we are loath to talk about because we don't like to talk about luck. Stuff we can't control. The reality is success in business is all about the things we don't control. And where the skill set we need is one of, ma- of, of being able to identify and manage luck. I mean, look, as a CEO, it's your job to make it rain every day, even when there's not a cloud in the sky. But the wise person brings a bucket for the unexpected downpour. And that bucket is a business best practice. And I believe that we need to think about luck and fortuity as a business skill set that should be taught, fostered, perfected, and performed. Wow, that's a good answer. (laughs) I'm taking notes here. Um, On the book, um, so so the book is, I mean, the title says Straight Talk for Startups, 100 Insider Rules for Beating the Odds. So how who's your market i mean as you read through this is it is it the investor is it the entrepreneur i mean i we're going to get into some of these rules because they do delve into the actual business and the heat and light of running a startup company but who who are you who are you who are you targeting i'm glad you asked that question because it is absolutely both this book was designed this book is a distillation of 40 years of experience mine john tunes Tom Perkins, Bill Campbell's 40 years of experience on the nuts and bolts of how to build a business and how to think about these critical issues. We wrote these as rules because we wanted to state them as definitive best practices. But as you read each of them, what you'll see is an, expo- an, an, a, an elaboration of them that allows you to think about why they're a rule and why they may or may not apply to your situation, and if they don't, how to bend them to it. And so the idea is that these are rules to be learned, they are rules to be uh, adapted, but they are not rules to be ignored because these are the rules that have driven great entrepreneurs for 40-some-odd years in the Valley. So having said that, I'm going to catch you up here. Your dedication, which you just said, it's dedicated for all the rule breakers who make this world a better and more interesting place in memory of Bill Campbell and Tom Perkins, rule breakers extraordinary. Absolutely. So after paying lip service to 100 rules, you're basically dedicating the book to the people who broke the rules. And I expect... So how do you reconcile that, just to, just to start the yeah, conversation? Yeah, so, so, so the, these rules are written in order for people to um, get a, a platform, a context for breaking them. The idea is understand these basic principles understand why they have worked in the past and why they are the go-to solution and understand how your situation may or may not fit. Break the rule, bend the rule, but don't ignore the rule. At least know what the rule is that you're breaking. This Look, one of the reasons John Tune and I wrote this book was specifically because of all of the infamy that we're now seeing in the, in the entrepreneurship world. No. Right. And and I look at that and I'm thinking these things could have been avoided if these if these entrepreneurs had had better counsel, if they had had better experience around their boards, if they had had better mentors, if they had known these things, these hundred rules, the chances are that there would have been better results or at least smaller 
fractures. I, you know, if you teach... This is a whole different conversation. I mean, it's, it is an amazing conversation. It's an amazing thing that's going on, and you're, you're going right at it's it. It's why we wrote this book. Yeah. If, if, look, if, we te- if you teach somebody to drive in an old, beat-up Honda, don't be surprised when it comes back dented. We're teaching people to drive in Ferraris, and we're all upset when they come back dented. That's a great... Uh, the reality uh, is that those dents are a lot more expensive and consequential, but it's the same process. We can avoid many of these things. How long did it take you to write the book? Well, so I'm going to give a long and a short answer. So Jantun Rigersman, who is my co-author and just a terrific collaborator on this, ex-Goldman, ex-Morgan, he had been the CFO of one of our startups that, uh, frankly, was challenging. I wasn't the partner on it, but I had met him at a a Kleiner Perkins party, and he had done an expedition to do what he called the 9,000-meter expedition. He was going to climb Everest, and he was going to go 150 meters below the ocean surface in one year. And um, <laughs> I, when I heard that, Whoa. he and I became fast buddies. Yeah. And so he would come into my office on a regular basis for t- a couple of years, and the topic would always be something like this. Why do smart people do stupid things? Right? That was the general theme yeah. of all of our conversations. And we would do this forensics about why did the board do this? What does your management team thinking? What was your investor thinking? And sometimes smart people do stupid things, but sometimes smart people appear to do stupid things because you don't understand the motivations. And we had done that for a number of years. And when he finally left that business, and now he's the CFO of a public company called Leaf Group, he said, why don't we capture those discussions Everybody will benefit from them. So John Toon spent a good year, year and a half, trying to pull those basic points together into something that could be a book. Frankly, the breakthrough was the format, and that was John Toon's as well. When he came back and said, you know what, let's, let's actually not make this one coherent book. Let's make this thematic, and let's make each chapter stand alone, and let the reader read one to three pages to get to the core information they need. Let's put some attitude in it, but let's make sure that we make this something that can be read in any order and referred to it any way. After he made that breakthrough, I wrote this in a week. The whole thing got written in one week. Well, you know, frankly, I... This is my life. This is immersive. This is the sort of thing where you shut off everything else and you just sit down. Maybe you pour yourself a glass of wine, but you're working basically 18 to 20 hours a It's day. my life. I'm just, this is what I do every day. These yeah. are the conversations I have with my CEOs every day. In fact, yeah. frankly, this is, this is a small portion of the, of the conversation I have with my CEOs every day. So once we come up with a format, I was just putting flesh on the skeleton and that came, it was like water off a duck. I was going to say, did it flow? Oh, my goodness. Absolutely. Yeah. So let's jump into some of the rules instead of keeping people in suspense. So I'm just, I picked them out randomly, okay? I mean, I read a lot of it. Um, I'm going to just pick some out. So rule 17, it says create two business plans, an execution plan and an aspirational plan. What is that about? Many times when I'm working with a, founder, entrepreneur, and they're putting together their pitch, they struggle with what the financial plan should look like. And what becomes very clear quickly is that it's pretty much could be anything you want it to be. What are your core assumptions? What are sensitivities to those assumptions? And they get pretty much paralyzed by this. And what I always say to them is, 
and, and they'll either then show me, they'll show me their true personality, either give me a conservative set of numbers yeah. or what I would consider to be an exaggerated set of numbers. And what I say to them is, give me one of each. Now, hang on. Let me put this in context. When you're interacting with a founder, are, are you wearing your investor, potential investor hat or your mentor hat? It's one in the same for me. When I have I'll those early discussions, okay. when, when I have those early discussions, frankly, I am tr- I'm just I'm trying to add value in a relationship, okay. like building a relationship. Whether that relationship turns into an investment or not is not my primary goal at that point. It's to engage with that founder around their idea and to help them understand how to fl- get, put flesh on that idea to be able to create the opportunity that they're pursuing. So I, I interrupted. So you said they get hung up on Yes. This. Yeah. So I say, look, give me two. Give me a bottoms-up cost-based model for what it's going to take you to remove risk and test your assumptions. Give me a tops-down aspirational model where you don't have line of sight around what the potential is here and be able to explain them. Explain what has to happen for your, um, uh, your aspirational model to occur. What things could occur in the world if we dream the dream with you? I'm not saying you're going to do them. I'm not even saying you actually have the, uh, an idea of how to make them happen. But what are they? And on the other side, Rather than just giving me a conservative growth plan, which isn't going to be interesting to me, show me how you're going to manage your expenses around removing risk that gives me confidence to spend more to scale this business. So I'm going to twist the question. So now, Randy, you have an investor hat on. You're looking steely-eyed, wondering if you're going to write a check. And the founder's twisting because he says, I've got, I've got the bottoms-up plan. It's essentially this is what I can do the money it's going to take to get there and how long it's going to take me. And then I've got this aspirational plan where I'm, I think I can, this is the vision. Right. Which of those two plans do I give you as the investor? Both. I want to see both, both really? I want to see both of them in the same deck. I want to see one that says base plan and one that says aspirational plan. And I want to see the assumptions behind the aspirational plan. So as an investor, I'm going to continue this as an investor, which plan do you hold the founder accountable for? I invest in no plan. Uh, Getting to plan B was all about the idea that plans are worthless as investment tools. And and what I mean by that is the following. If you invest in a business um, plan before they have a product, before they have a customer, before they have a dollar in revenue, and that plan turns out to be right, you are lucky, not smart. And the reason you're lucky, not smart is you don't have enough information to be smart. So I don't invest in plans. I invest in people and in problems and in value creation. That's what I invest in. Value creation, not business models. It's my job to help create a business model. People, not necessarily teams because it's the leadership, and problems because that creates the market opportunity. That's how I look at an early stage venture. But you want that founder to create two plans walking in the door. Absolutely. Oh, interesting. I want them to be able to explain to me how they can manage the resources I'm going to give them to remove risk. And I want them to explain to me what the potential is if things go right. Rule 31. We're going to move right on here. Okay. Avoid venture capital unless you absolutely need it. Absolutely. Comment? Venture capital is very expensive. 
Um, and it's expensive not just in terms of dilution, which a lot of people measure it by, but there are all sorts of constraints on you as a leadership team and your company once you have venture capital involved. Uh, there are all sorts of issues on ongoing financing and support. Venture capitalists can be very fickle. Venture capitalists will sell you a line of value that they're going to create and help bring to the table. They oftentimes don't deliver. And you will end up having hired not just, or brought on not just investors, but you have hired your boss. Because suddenly they're sitting across the table from you and they're going to hire, they're basically going to determine whether you're going to continue in that position or not. You need to be prepared to bring on a venture capital um, investor, and you need to feel confident that you have what they need to feel comfortable with your business in the long term. If you go to them prematurely, then I think you create more problems for yourself than otherwise. And I do think in this world of expansive capital, you can raise enough capital to test assumptions and reduce risk before you need to bring in institutional capital. So as a related question, I know a lot of founders angst about control. You know, if I if you know I'm going to I'm going to go talk to one of the big top tier institutional firms and they're going to tell me I'm going to have to give up 20% stake in the company at least, maybe 40% if I bring two of them in and so forth. How how do you advise founders? Now now you're worrying a hmm. you're coaching an entrepreneur. How should they think about dilution and this this thing, this mystique surrounding control, 50% ownership. First of all, dilution is a, it's just a misnomer, right? I mean, nobody dilutes. They sell something for, to get something bigger in return. Right. So if you're selling a piece of your company, what are you getting? You're getting some money, sure. But you better be getting more than that. If you're not going to get somebody who's going to fundamentally change the size of your opportunity or accelerate the opportunity, then you're not getting your, your dilution's worth on your deal. So I think it's very important for a founder to consider um, the idea of dilution as a way of bringing the key resources and talent that are going to allow their idea to be successful faster and bigger than if they did it on their own. That's what they're really looking for in that partner. And the idea of control to me is also illusory. If, you're, if you want to keep control, do not bring on good investors. If you want to bring people around the table are going to help you be a better leader and your company be more successful, then choose the right partners. What you're really doing is not fighting around control. You want to fight around the issue of the participation, the people, and the, um, the mechanism by which you are all going to operate as a team. To think about control as a founder is sort of like thinking about your management team. You never hire a second-rate management team because they're cheaper. You never want to bring on your investors because they're going to give you a higher valuation. You want to bring on investors because they're going to make your opportunity bigger and they're going to make you more successful. So on that, on that note, I'm going to shift again with another kind of ancillary question. There's a lot of debate, especially that goes on in the business school about, geez, there are all these, these accelerators and incubators out there and Y Combinators out there. And if you get the good housekeeping seal of approval, you're off to the races. And there are a lot of other very well-known accelerators, effectively um, collaborative spaces that provide a lot of infrastructure support, introductions to investors, coaching, mentoring. It's kind of a one-stop shop. So if a founder walks into your office, no, I, I'm going to ask you to take off your investor hat. Now you're coaching an entrepreneur. And the entrepreneur walks in and says, Randy, I mean, I've got an opportunity. 
either I take money from an institutional VC and I really like the partner that's that's going to sponsor me, or I you know I have an opportunity to go join a, a known a, a known accelerator in town that has a lot of connections into the community. How how do you think about that? I mean, in part, it's tangential to the dilution question, but it, it's it's more fundamental to the nature of, you know, the, in the pursuit of success. Well, remember, there's dilution going to an incubator. I mean, why correct? Takes, I, cor- I understand, right? Yeah. I mean, I think for 150 grand, they take seven percent. That's my dilution, point. Which is yeah. a lot of dilution yeah. when you think about 150 grand. I I think that inc- that incubators are good at helping founders network. They're good at helping them network with potential. Uh, co-founders, with employees, and with investors. I do not think that the that incubators are very good at helping to build businesses. And so you need to understand your motivation. If you have a good network, and the way you pose this question, if you have a good investor already willing to invest, somebody you've vetted, you believe you can get along with, who's going to add value to your project, then b- basically you already have done what the incubator is going to do for you. Um, my sense is that incubators are very, very valuable. So, so why give up the, the 7% exactly. equity stake? Exactly. Yeah. Okay. I think incubators are very, very valuable outside the Bay Area. And that is because if you're in Warsaw or if you're in Rome, you don't live in an entrepreneurial community. You've got to sort of define your network within four walls. Silicon Valley is an incubator. I mean, it is one yeah. big incubator. Yeah. And so the idea of working with a, a, um, an incubator, uh, a, a, a professional incubator, is one about tapping into networks, whether it's the alumni network or whether it's the investor network or whether it's the potential employee network, and then it can be valuable. I mean, that, that is your rule 30. It says incubators are good for finding investors or not for developing businesses. That's right. That's right. And I think in there I allude to the – to the often told story, I don't know if it's true or not, about the Y Combinator company who spent 12 of the 13 weeks on one business, changes it in the last week, uses the same slides to raise money because they all have these hockey sticks with nothing on the axes. Yeah. That's kind of the, the game plan. I personally think that it doesn't do um, entrepreneurs much uh, value in terms of building their businesses, but it certainly can expose them to the networks yeah. they need for success. So I want to ask you um – First of all, for people who are just dialing us, our guest this hour is Randy Commissar, who is an experienced venture capitalist. We're at Kleiner Perkins, one of the renowned, I would say, top-tier venture capital firms in the United States. And he also is an author. We're talking partially about his recent book called Straight Talk for Startups. And I'm just throwing out a bunch of questions here to see if I can trip him up. So far, I'm not <laughs> doing very well. But let's say I'm an entrepreneur, Randy, and I come in and I have a meeting with you. I'm going to pitch my company. And I'm asking for you know, a certain amount of money. First question is, how much money should I ask for? How, what's the construct in my mind I should have when I'm approaching you to raise money? Is it, I mean, how do you think about that? Well, I think, first so of that's all... A, I mean, that's a question that is the threshold question for every entrepreneur. Do I need a million, five million, 20 million? The classic, the classic approach to raising money in Silicon Valley is staged financing. And there's a reason why that's the case. It's because you want to raise enough money to remove the white hot risks in order to go back to the to the to the well to receive new money from new investors at a higher valuation based upon the new risk profile mm-hmm. that's what you want to do and um and more often than not that's the best way to both discipline your company 
and to um, make sure that you are not selling too much of your company at too low a price too early. Now, in an overheated market like the Bay Area, it is possible that somebody will give you a check for two rounds of financing at once, completely ignoring the risk that still needs to be removed. In that case, take the money and imply self-discipline. Don't spend it. Yeah. The problem is that too many companies, too many founders are such believers in their original vision that if they have too much money, they will persist even when the facts and data is demonstrating that their assumptions are wrong, and they will waste that money. If you can be self-disciplined in the process, if you can build a good board that will keep you self-disciplined, and somebody's willing to pre-finance you for a, for a, uh, a risk that you still have to remove, by all means, take it. But many, many companies, I would argue that more companies I've worked with have died from, um, from indigestion than from starvation. Interesting. Yeah. So um, I'm going to continue this scenario. So I walk into your office and say, Randy, I'm looking for five million bucks on a pre-money valuation of five. So you get 50. I get 50 percent. I keep 50 percent of the company and you you get your stake of 50. Um, and your your response to that is I, I, I don't think you should take five million. I think you should take two. So in effect, the investor looks back at the entrepreneur and says, I'm not prepared to write a check for everything you want. I'm going to write you a check for a lesser amount. How a founder should prepare for that, how should he prepare for that? I think they should have a strong understanding of how those numbers foot against risk reduction. That's the rash, that, that's where the rubber hits the road in this entire discussion. Otherwise, it's just numbers. What needs to be understood very clearly and expressed very clearly is what the, those dollars will buy you in terms of testing assumptions and reducing risk. And if you come back, if I offer you $2 million and you come back to me and say, you know, Randy, that's, that's great. But fundamentally, the problem with that is here's what I can do with the $2 million. It's going to leave me with a gap. And that gap's not good for you or for me because that means I'm going to be raising money without having proven all of these three things. So you need to give me a little more money to make sure that maybe it's not five, but maybe it's three and a half in order to make sure that I don't end up in that gap and we don't end up having to sell part of the company at too low a price because we still haven't removed the white hot risk. That's where the discussion should be focused. So I would, I would come back to you and say as an experienced investor, you're not just sitting there passively. You're making a, a judgment as to how much money it's going to take to get from point A to point B, to get to that benchmark or that milestone. So how do you, um, how do you, how do you address that? I mean, as, as, a, as, as a question of reality, you know, the founder is looking at you and saying, I can get to that milestone even with the pared down amount of financing. And you're making a, a judgment is your judgment, do you have metrics that you apply for companies when they come in and say, we've got five co-founders, we've got one office, but virtual employees out in Oregon? I mean, you must have metrics, Randy, that you use to assess whether or not the cash burner, the application of capital funding is appropriate. Well, are there, there's are a there, lot of pattern recognition. I wouldn't say there's clear metrics. That because, was my question. I yeah. mean, how do you think about it? Is it just pattern recognition? Yeah, it's really about new information coming all, the, all in all the time, but not necessarily being directly applicable. And the discussion that you're talking about 
have in here, be you the entrepreneur, me the investor, right. is critical not because I have a clear sense of what that number should be, but because how you respond to my pattern recognition is now key to my due diligence about how good you are as an entrepreneur. And that means how well do you respond with facts that can convince me that my pattern recognition is not applicable in this situation. The negotiation that I have with an entrepreneur is really due diligence. It's not a transaction. That's well put. Right? Yeah. I'm, I'm trying to figure out how do you think? How do you respond? How do we solve problems together? If we're not good at that, it doesn't matter what, how, what I invest at what price and what, what, what the dilution is. It's irrelevant. I need to be sure that you're the right custodian of my money and that you can create value and that we have a relationship where I can add value to you. Um, last, last rule, rule 13, manage your team like a jazz band. Yeah. What's that about? Well, the idea of play jazz. So I, could. I love jazz. In fact, I just I just was uh, I just saw Maynard Ferguson last night. Um I I love jazz and the reason I this rule is in there is because in jazz there's a balance between playing as part of the band and the improv improvisation that goes on as part of the band and also the solo. It's Taking the taking the the center stage yourself, that is a very very tricky balance. It is the balance that has to take place every day in an entrepreneurial venture. And if you, as a manager, are going to insist on every note, you're never going to get the best improvisation. And if you're not going to share the stage, you're not going to get the best people. Great, great, uh, great response. Last question, and then I want to come back to you. We've only got a couple minutes left. Um, this thing about diversity, Trey Vassallo was talking about her experiences in general, what she's experienced in the industry, and there's a, a study that she did and so forth. But clearly, Silicon Valley is struggling with this issue. How do you think about that? Well, first of all, I worked with Trey for years, and she's fantastic. She was my partner in crime. She helped me do the Nest deal. We worked very closely on that. It was a big success. I'm a huge fan of, of Trey's. Um, I think it's, it's good for her. She left Kleiner. It's bad for Kleiner. Um, look, I think there's a, there's a serious inclusion diversity issue in both the, the, lo the locale, the region, and the industry. Um, and venture capital is part of that. And I think this is an issue not because we're issues of sexual harassment, which are blatant legal problems, but because inclusion is important for three critical reasons. One, it's fair. We, there's, it is unfair to exclude people based upon gender, race, or any other non-productive qualification. Two, diverse teams are better. And particularly if you're an innovator, that creative friction, if you're a good manager, bad managers hate creative friction, they like to hire homogeneous groups, those tend not to be the best groups. But if you can manage creative friction, then you can get great innovative insights from your team. But thirdly, and I think this is why it's very important to Silicon Valley, if places like Facebook and Apple and Google are defining a global platform for how the world is going to communicate and share information, then that should be reflective of the values of different people 
from different parts of the planet, with different backgrounds, with different gender orientations, with disabilities, with all of that. And if we're just having one pasteurized group of people develop that, then we're not doing, uh, we're not doing everything we can do as an innovative community. We are out of time. I knew it was going to happen. Randy, thanks a lot. It's been great having you on board. It's my pleasure. Um, so where can we go? Two things. Where can they get the book, uh, Straight Talk for Startups? It probably the easiest place is Amazon. Okay. And then where can, they, where can people get a hold of you? Uh, Kleiner Perkins. Uh, just come to the website and you can find me there. Great. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. 